You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name is Liv, and I will be reading from Matthew 14, 13 to 21, and 15, 32 to 38. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, let me pray as we receive this today. Join me. God, we want to encounter you today. We want you to come and to reveal yourself to us that we might draw near to you. Would you change us in your presence? Help us to be more and more the kind of people who are upside down kingdom people, who are not only feasting on you, Jesus, but are sharing you with the world. We are feeding the world with you, we pray, that that would happen as a result of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, you might remember that we saw what happens when uh, given authority, when someone is given an authority and they don't live under God's authority. That was the story that we studied with Herod and Herod eventually having John the Baptist's head cut off. And we saw what happens when evil powers rule. But in today's stories, Matthew is going to contrast that with that evil power. He's gonna contrast that with godly power. He's going to contrast Herod 
with Jesus. We're gonna see what happens when God becomes king, when God rules. Because when God becomes king, it's a kingdom that multiplies. It's a kingdom of abundance, amen? It's a kingdom of generosity, and it's totally upside down. Through the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000, these two stories, we're gonna see that Jesus has satisfied our hunger, and so we feast, but we also feed the world. Jesus has satisfied our hunger, and so we feast but we also feed the world. Now, both of these stories, we're gonna kind of look at these, uh, contrasting these two stories together, the the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, seeing what's the same, what's the different different about them. I was actually tempted to use, uh, you guys remember on Sesame Street, they had that game that was like, one of these things is not like the others, one of these, I was tempted to use that, but that's kind of what we're doing, but much more serious and more important than that game, okay? We're gonna look at these two stories. The first story, oh, oh, sorry, we're gonna look first at the location for the feast in both of these stories. Now the first story tells us that though Jesus had sought to withdraw to a desolate place to be by himself, remember, to, to grieve the death of John the Baptist, That didn't work out for him. The crowds uh, followed him, they heard about where he'd gone, and they followed him there. Jesus had taken this boat to a faraway place. He'd actually left Herod's, the land that Herod ruled over, and he had gone to the place that Herod's brother, if you remember the one whose brother, the, the brother whose wife Herod had taken, he went to the land that Herod's brother oversaw, this land that Luke's gospel tells us is a place near Bethsaida. And so Jesus has gone pretty far away. Uh, uh, by boat, it may not have been that far, but it was a four-mile hike on land, and yet these crowds, you can just kind of imagine them like locusts, like cruising through the land and going to where they've heard that Jesus is. And it said in the first story in chapter 14, Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. He, he wasn't too busy for them. He wasn't too busy grieving that he couldn't also give. Now the second story tells us that Jesus had also just gotten done healing there as well. Uh, So much so that the crowd, it said, was in awe of him. Now Liv didn't read this part, I've kind of added it in here, is right before the story, in the second half of verse 31 of chapter 15, it said, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus has been doing all of this healing. Pastor David's gonna preach on that in a few weeks. And it says they glorified the God of Israel, which is an interesting detail and it clues us in a bit about where Jesus was at this point. Why does Matthew say it that way? It's because the God of Israel was not their God. Jesus has now gone into Gentile territory in the second story. He's left the land of the Jews for just a moment. He'll go back there. And he's gone to a people of a different ethnicity, of a different religion. And what's he doing? He's there ministering to them. He's healing them. And so both of these stories are very similar from the start with one main difference, and that is that the first group of people is a group of insiders, they're the Jews, right? And the second group of people is a group of outsiders. 
And if we can try and draw some parallels to our world today as the church and how that might relate to us, we're also taught in scripture in a similar way that we are to minister to those both inside of the church and both those outside of the church. When we serve those who are in need, we serve the church, yes, but we also serve the world, which we'll get into in a little more detail later. And so both stories, that's the setting, that's, that's kind of the location of this feast. Both stories then continue with the occasion for the feast. Now the first story tells us that it's been a long day and, and it doesn't tell us that people are hungry, but we can assume everybody's probably hungry. They haven't eaten all day long. And so what do the disciples do? They observe that this is probably the case. What do they do? They go up to Jesus and they tell him what to do. Probably not a good plan, right? Come up to Jesus and tell him what to do. Yes, that's supposed to be funny. Thanks, Mike. Mike laughed for me. And here's what they tell him. They say, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So they don't, they don't say please, they don't say thank you, they just tell Jesus what to do. They've come up with this plan, they think it's a really good plan. And so they share it with him, Jesus doesn't particularly like it. Verse 16, he says, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. And so they give Jesus this fairly reasonable plan for how he can get this large crowd of people fed, and Jesus says, I'm with you, Now you do it, you do it. And this is really important. We're gonna talk about this again in a bit, but Jesus does this quite a bit throughout all of the Gospels. The same pattern, and in the book of Acts, once Jesus has ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit, this is the guiding principle for the church and its ministry. We ask Jesus to do something and he says, I'm with you. Now you go and do it, right? I'm with you, now you go and do it. But what we need to see here specifically is that there may be times where we want Jesus to do something. We want him to move in our lives. We want him to act in the world. We, we want him to feed the hungry. We want him to help the broken. We want him to lead people to himself so that they can find life in him. And he's saying to us, friends, you go and do it yourself. I'm with you. It's, it's like we're praying to him, Jesus, you know, should I help this person? And he's saying, yeah, I already told you to help that person. I've already revealed that to you. See, we, we don't always need to stop and pray about every little situation that we encounter where there's an opportunity to bless when there's an opportunity to serve. Well, there are certainly times in our lives where we need to pull aside and seek his will, seek to be discerning about something. Uh, There's something to be said for his revealed will where he's already told us what to do. He's already shown us what to do. And in situations where Jesus has already said it in his word, he's going, I'm with you. Now go and do it yourself, get to work. Now in the second story, it's a little bit different. Not a lot different, it's a little bit different. It tells us in verse 32 that Jesus called the disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Everyone in that first story hadn't eaten all day. That's a long time to go without eating. So we can imagine they were peckish, right, to use a British term, right? But it's clear here that everyone is dangerously hungry. They've been on top of a mountain for three days. And so Jesus is concerned that it's been so long that it would actually it maybe be dangerous for him to send them away, that they could faint on their way to go get food, he says. And so he knows they must feed everyone. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus embodies the heart of God. He embodies the heart of God. If you ever wonder how God feels about the hungry, if you ever wonder how God feels about the weak, if you ever wonder how God feels about the vulnerable, wonder no more. Because Jesus has compassion on them, it says. He pities them. That's literally what it means. See, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the true human. He makes the invisible God visible to us. And he has compassion for those who are in need. If we want to know what God's heart is like, look at Jesus. He has compassion. He has compassion on you. He has compassion on me. Whatever our condition is, he has compassion for us. And now, the occasion for the miracle. That's what leads to the occasion for the miracle. Now remember, in story number one, Jesus didn't like the command that the disciples had given to him for, for him to send everyone away. And so he told them, you go and, and, and you give them something to eat, right? And they respond with, with saying, we only have five loaves and a, a few fish and two small fish. And the same basic thing happens in both stories. In story number two, they told him, we only have seven loaves and a few small fish. And here, of course, is where we get into the problem. Because in both stories, there's simply not enough food. And I don't know about you, but if I were the disciples and I had just told him, just told Jesus, this is all that we've got, I'd, I'd probably be trying to encourage Jesus to re-enter the real world. This is just how I think. Like, Jesus, come on. I mean, feeding this many people with this amount of food is impossible. Like, don't you know that, Jesus? Come on. And in fact, that seems to be a bit of the message that's underneath the disciples' statement in the second half of verse 33. They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Perfectly good question. Perhaps there might be a bit of a lack of faith here with this question. Uh, they've just seen Jesus do all these miracles. They've already forgotten that he can do more, perhaps that's going on, but more likely than that, I think they were more confused than anything. They were like, uh, how, practically, Jesus, how exactly is this going to work out? Makes me wonder, do we believe Jesus when he tells us to act in obedience, but it's going to require a miracle for, for it to generate the outcome that we're looking for? Do we have enough faith to believe that when we act in obedience, Jesus could perform a miracle? You know, they might have had enough, yeah, amen, right? <laughs> There's always at least one person that agrees with me, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Amen. Do we have the faith to act in obedience and trust that God could perform a miracle? They seem to have enough faith. The disciples didn't you know, tell Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, yeah, right, like we're gonna feed this many people with this amount of food, right, right, right. No, no, they just stepped out in faith. They seemed to believe that Jesus actually knows what he's doing. They knew that the impossible is often the very place where a miracle happens. And so that brings us to the miracle. The miracle in story number one starts in verse 18 of chapter 14. And he said, bring them here to me. That's the the food. Bring the fishes and the loaves. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. It said it was a desolate place. It's not necessarily like a desert. It's just a wilderness area. It's, It's an uninhabited area. And he has them sit down on the nice grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. He blessed God for providing the food. Oftentimes when we pray a prayer of blessing, we go, God bless this food. Well, he already has. (laughs) The idea is, God, we wanna bless you, we wanna praise you, we wanna thank you because you're the one where this food came from. That's what Jesus was doing. And he broke the loaves and Catch this, this is super important. Center, center of the story. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. We're gonna come back to that. And they all ate. That's the, the, the very, very center. They all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of the pieces broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So many people. We're gonna talk about the numbers in just a second. Let's read the miracle in story number two, beginning in verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, don't have any grass in this spot, perhaps it's a little rough. Sitting down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, same thing, thanked God for the food, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Same phrase, right? And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 4,000 men besides women and children. So these two events are the largest scale miracles that Jesus performed in his entire earthly ministry. Both of them, largest scale. The the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And it's important to note that in verse 21 of chapter 14, this Greek word that's translated as about, it literally means as if. So the point is it was roughly 5,000 people, they didn't count every single person's head. And we can assume the same for the second story. It was roughly 4,000 men. This is not meant to be an exact amount. But keep in mind, those two numbers of people don't include, it said, women and children. And scholars estimate around two to four times as many people were actually there if you include the women and children. Just think about that for a minute. So maybe 20,000 people, the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe 15,000 people, the feeding of the 4,000. I mean, it's like bonkers, right? Imagine for a moment that you're at a concert at the Gorge. Anybody been to a concert at the Gorge? Talked to somebody earlier who had. 
Okay, like four of you, okay. Uh, I went and saw, I've only been there once, I went and saw Radiohead there on the Kid A and Amnesiac tour, like five people probably appreciate that. It was amazing. And it looked a lot like this, okay? So I just want you to kind of grasp the number of people that we're talking about here, right? And imagine you're at this concert at the Gorge and everybody's run out of food, everybody's hungry. Uh, I'm guessing in more realistic terms, people ran out of beer and they're, they're, I don't know, but but let's just pretend that they're just eating food and they've run out of food, right? And everybody's hungry. And now you have to feed everyone on that entire hill. I mean, we're talking about a massive crowd of people. To feed them without anything or with a few things would take a miracle. And that's exactly what Jesus does, a miracle. And I know that as I say that, there, there may be people here who this whole time we've been talking and t- telling the story, you've just been wrestling with it, you've been struggling to believe because they involve miracles happening. You, you, know, you thought that when we're talking about Jesus healing people, now we're talking about this huge multiplied meal And I want to warn you, if you're struggling with the miracles, we're going to struggle with miracles for the next few weeks. We've got more miracles in the next couple of weeks that we're going to be covering. And I want to invite you to come back and to continue to struggle through them, continue to pursue the truth as you seek to understand. And if you're struggling to believe in these miracles, perhaps you'd prefer to think of Jesus as maybe a good teacher, right? And he is that. Or maybe you'd prefer to think of Jesus as you know, a wise sage. But you won't ever encounter the real Jesus until you reckon with the fact that he's also a miracle worker. Amen? Do you really believe that, church? That he's a miracle worker? What do you do with Jesus' miracles? You might, if you're struggling with this, you might say, well, people just kind of believed that sort of thing back then. You know, maybe, maybe to some extent, but, but you have to consider that in all of ancient literature, we have nothing to the degree of the amount of miracles that are attributed to Jesus. No other ancient gods were, were told to have performed this many miracles. No other ancient uh, powerful rulers and leaders you know, in all their exploits and conquests, none of them contain the number of miracles that the gospels attribute to Jesus. So we can't just say, well, that was just how they liked to think about things back then. That's not true. It's not just a matter of what people were willing to believe. And I go back again, what do you do? What will you do with Jesus' miracles? Will you write them off because they're not provable with science? That's what I think a lot of us in our day and age tend to do. But before you do that, let's ask a scientist about that, okay? Let's just talk to a scientist for a minute. There's a guy named Ian Hutchinson who's a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. He's Pretty well accredited, he knows what he's talking about, right? And he also happens to be a Christian who believes in miracles, okay? And he says this, natural science describes the normal reproducible working of the world of nature. Indeed, the key meaning of nature is the normal course of events. On the other hand, he says, 
Miracles are inherently abnormal. It does not take modern science to tell us that humans don't rise from the dead. People knew that perfectly well in the first century, just as they knew that the blind from birth don't as adults regain their sight, or water doesn't instantly turn into wine. Or I would add, in light of what we're looking at today, that five loaves of bread and two fish don't feed 20,000 people, right? They knew that back then. Dr. Hutchinson goes on later to say that science can be helpful to prove only false miracles, quote unquote miracles, it can, it can help to prove that they are actually false so long as it can find concrete, he uses this scientific phrase, defeating evidence. So in other words, it's not that we shouldn't test miracles with science. That would kind of be a cop-out, I think, in our day and age. But where possible, we should. Uh, he gives this example of like if you heard about some guy who was levitating on a flying carpet in his living room, you could go and you could test that scientifically, right? And if you found that he had all these crazy electromagnetic things set up to make that happen, then, then science would be useful to you in that situation. No, a miracle is not happening. But he says, if science fails to find defeating evidence, then it is unable to say one way or the other whether some reported inexplicable event happened or to prove that it, is, that it is miraculous. Science functions by reproducible experiments and observations. Some of you guys who are scientists in the room, you, you know that, you understand that. Science, uh, where am I? Observations, miracles are by definition abnormal and non-reproducible, so they cannot be proved by science's methods. In other words, try and simplify this because that's what I need to do to understand guys like him who are smarter than me. In other words, while supposed miracles could be scientifically proven to be false when they're not really a miracle, no miracle can be scientifically proven to be true not because it's not true, because that's not how the scientific method works, but that doesn't make it untrue. And so his point is that we can't use the absence of scientific evidence as an excuse not to believe something. Instead, we have to deal with whatever is before us. And friends, we have Jesus before us. We have Jesus before us. Here he is. What explanation does the Bible give to us for his miracles? The Bible says it's proof that he is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh. And so really, what else would you expect, right? Eternal God comes down from heaven to earth in the form of a mortal man, what is going to happen? Miracles are going to happen, right? And I think part of why this doesn't compute for us, part of why the, the, the whole idea of what Jesus is doing doesn't really make sense to us is because we live in a physical and a spiritual world, but because the physical realities are all around us, right in front of us at all times, we can tend to miss the deeper spiritual realities that are right there beneath them. And that's easy to do with these miracles. These stories contain a lot of details about bread and fish, right? Right? Okay, thank you. 
Just saying, seeing if you're with me. And we can make the mistake of believing that these stories are ultimately about bread and fish. In fact, that's the mistake that the crowds made. They were so stoked on their hunger being satisfied that in John's gospel where he retells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that they were going to try and seize Jesus to make him king. They were so excited about what they had just done for them, what he had just done for them, that they were so excited about the fact that their bellies were full, right then and there, they tried to seize him and make them king, because who doesn't want a king that gives you seemingly never-ending food, right? It's a good situation. But Jesus' miracles were not about bread and fish. And later in... John's account of this story, Jesus actually rebukes the crowds for only wanting him to provide physical nourishment. He explains the meaning of these miracles, the crowds, what the the miracles are supposed to reveal about him. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus teaches us that the underlying meaning behind all of this is that he doesn't just care for our physical needs. He does do that. But our physical needs are meant to point us to something much deeper, much more profound, that he satisfies our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst. And yet it's important to note Jesus didn't create a false dichotomy between these two things, between the physical and the spiritual. He didn't pit these against each other. He didn't you know, only emphasize his spiritual work. Pastor David pointed out that in this story, Jesus didn't just say, hey guys, I'm the bread of life. Now go home and think about that for a minute. He didn't do that. He actually fed them. He actually had compassion on them. He actually took care of their physical needs. And on the flip side, we as Christians, we can oftentimes be so eager to find whatever the deeper spiritual meaning is behind something that we can functionally have a disembodied faith, a faith that doesn't need the physical world, that that tries to ignore it. We live as though the physical is not important, which is of course a disaster for ministry because human beings are whole. Human beings are both material and spiritual. This is why we love partnering with other ministries that are like-minded in that sense, that we wanna think about and consider the whole person. This is why uh, you guys who are here this summer, we had Guzine, she came all the way from Turkey, where she's doing this kind of ministry. She's caring for physical needs and spiritual needs. Uh, This is why in the month of August, we were uh, encouraging you to sponsor children through Children of the Nations, right? We're now, as a church, praise God, sponsoring 55 kids overseas. Can we just praise God for that? Thank you for your generosity. I was just talking to uh, one of our members who just went on a trip with Children of the Nations to Sierra Leone, so I don't know, maybe we'll get to hear about that as a church in the next few weeks, but they they love caring about both the physical and the spiritual needs of the whole person. In fact, uh, there's a local ministry that we love partnering with, Urban Impact, who has that same mindset, that they recognize that it's all about not just 
the, the physical poverty, but the spiritual poverty that people are living in. Uh, Urban Impact has been run by Harvey Drake for the entirety of its existence. And in, if you were here in the last month, he came and he preached here a few weeks ago. Pastor David and I got to be there present with him yesterday as he celebrated his retirement. This was the last day that he worked for Urban Impact. So he's just been a pillar of the faith here in Seattle for decades, and we're gonna really miss him. And, and it's a major celebration of the work that he has done, but it's also a major loss for our city as he goes away from here. But the point in bringing all that stuff up is just to say these are ministries that care about the whole person, and that the Bible teaches us that if we encounter someone in physical need and we only address their spiritual needs, we're actually not loving them. Or if we, the opposite is also true, if we, if we encounter someone uh, and we only address their physical needs while ignoring their spiritual needs, we're not loving them. And so you see, friends, I hope you see through the story, Jesus has satisfied our hunger he satisfied us physically. Just like he did in this story, as, as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, Jesus is the God who provides for us everything that we have, even as we sang about right before the message. He's the one who causes the rain to fall and the crops to grow and the people, powers the people to harvest it, the food and distribute it and for you to earn the money to be able to buy it. Jesus has satisfied our hunger physically. Can we just praise him, amen? Amen, Amen. he takes care of our needs. And yet Jesus has satisfied our hunger spiritually. Jesus has satisfied our hunger for a ruler that actually uses his power to bless people rather than for his own purposes. Jesus has satisfied our hunger for a God who enters this world with compassion. Jesus has satisfied our hunger for a savior who's willing to sacrifice his own life in order to give us life. And as we feast on him day after day after day, he brings new life to us to satisfy us, not just once, not just when we uh, come to salvation, but as he is saving us, he brings us day after day into satisfaction in him. And I wonder... Are you taking advantage of that? Are you feasting on the bread of life every day? Are you enjoying his presence with you? You know, do you believe that he will satisfy your hunger? You know, as we eat, as we are satisfied, we're reminded of that moment when the disciples tried to get Jesus to feed everyone. Do you remember that? And, and Jesus turns to them, he says, I'm with you. Now you go and do it, right? He said, he, it said he broke the bread and the, lo- the, the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and, the, and then the disciples gave them to the crowds. So important. You see, he didn't just feed the disciples bread and fish. He did do that. But he gave them this food in order that they would go and that they would share it with the crowds. He did it with the insiders, the Jews. He did it with the outsiders, the Gentiles. And you see, Jesus, friends, has satisfied our hunger. If you're a Christian, he has satisfied your hunger. And so we feast, that means we continue to go back to him, the bread of life, day after day, but then we go 
and we feed the world. See, Jesus was training his disciples and this story is training us to see that he is the provider, but we are the distributors. He is the source, but then we are the means by which his ministry happens because we are fed not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. We need to exist for the good of the world. And and this message, friends, as I was meditating on this this week, this was super convicting for me. Super convicting for me because when we got back from our trip to Europe last month, or when was that? Jeez Louise, Uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess. When we got back from our recent trip, after a few days of being back, I realized something had happened to me while we were gone. I had grown more self-serving on that trip. Over the span of that month we were gone, we went to over 40 museums. We, (laughs) yeah, for real, for real. Uh, we had a lot of long days. I mean, there were days where we were walking for seven to 10 miles on, on an average. We'd often come back to the hotel room exhausted, and I would balance our food budget for the day to see how we did, <laughs> you know? And then I'd watch a few YouTube videos and crash. I'd just be exhausted, wiped out. And so as these days went on, I, I became more and more self-serving, and I'd kind of medicate a little bit with maybe some gelato or a latte, another latte. I mean, they're only like a dollar there, if you can imagine. These lattes are amazing in Italy, and they're a dollar, so might as well get another one. Uh, Or another croissant, right? I was on vacation. Not all that was bad, okay? I'm not trying to say I was like overeating or something, but what I didn't realize all that way was that my heart was drifting slow, just day by day, just a little by little, I came to believe I had earned the right to be self-serving. I, I, I was believing that by the time we arrived home. And I brought that heart with me home. And I was talking with the Lord about it after he brought this to mind, and, and he reminded me of this, this statement that Jesus taught, and, and it's quoted by Paul in Acts 20. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, I didn't believe that. I genuinely was living like I didn't believe that was true. I genuinely believed it was better to receive than to give. And I confessed this to Emily, to the well, Lord, and then I confessed it to Emily and my family. And since then, God's Spirit has been doing this work on my heart. He's been transforming me to believe this truth and embrace it and want to act on it. And it's got me thinking, church, this is a major issue in the church. Major major issue. Our culture is constantly training us to believe that it's better to receive than to give, right? Amen? Always teaching us this, and that value system comes in, and then it permeates everything we do. We become more consumeristic. Even spirituality and church life becomes about what I can get more than what I can give, 
And what happens, the church, we grow more inwardly focused. We create these like holy huddles, right? The ones that don't welcome in the outsiders, ones that don't ever go out to serve the outsiders. But we can see so clearly, friends, in this story, this is not Jesus' intention for his world, for, for his people. He wants us to be like him, so generous, multiplying, compassionate. And that's really what these stories are about. They're, they're about receiving Jesus, yes, but they're about sharing then what he has given to us. We don't exist for ourselves, church. He gives us the fishes and the loaves so that we can go and, and hand it out on his behalf. In other words, he gives us our talents so that we can go and use those to bless people. He gives us our resources, he gives us our time, he gives us our money so that we can use those to bless people. He satisfies us with himself so that we can feed the world, so we can go share Jesus with the world. I wanna give you a couple of instructions as we close our time for your community groups as you get together this week. A couple of questions. Are you feasting? And what I mean by that isn't so much about the food, but it's more about Christ. Are you feasting on Christ day after day? Are you feasting on the bread of life that's available to you day after day? Are you feeding others? And that could be physical or spiritual. Are you feeding others? And then the last one, the spiritual discipline, feast. I love giving you guys this assignment. Feast. As you get together with your community groups, just enjoy a meal. And I don't just mean just join, enjoy a meal, but as you share that physical meal together, I wanna encourage you to feast on Christ together. How do you enjoy the presence of Jesus as you feast on this food? And you know what? Today, as we've gathered here and we're worshiping Jesus together, we're going to feast together. We're gonna to come to the communion table. I'm gonna invite the band up as we prepare to receive communion and respond to God together. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.